from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Marvin Doc Holliday on November 16, 2015. Ethnomusicologist Marvin Doc Holliday is a living legend in the world of jazz. His musicianship supported such jazz world luminaries as Pepper Adams, Cannonball Adderley, Nat Adderley, Quincy Jones, and Dizzy Gillespie. His autobiography, Life on the Fence, chronicles his continued evolution in the area of music, race relations, humanitarianism, and social justice from the period of the world's greatest war through today. If you go on Amazon.com, you can find his solo CD, Sweetness in Life. He's produced a recent CD called Wings for the Spirit. I started the interview by asking Doc where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in a town called Chanute, C-H-A-N-U-T-E, Chanute, Kansas, in the southeastern part of the state, basically a farm town. We were not a large city by any means, just a, just a town. The majority of activity there was had to do with the farmers around us, and we had a cement plant in that town, so that was a pretty big one. Also, we had a roundhouse for the, for the uh, Santa Fe Railroad uh, in Chanute for the, the, the trains going north and south from uh, Kansas City down to Tulsa. Anyhow, that was our town, and that's where I grew up. And what was religious life like growing up for you? I was raised in my, my family's church, my parents' church, I should say. I was active as a young person there. there. <laughs> Actually, I was made the uh, kind of the leader of the youth group in that church, which was okay. It was, it was fine. But by so doing, I started to, to see more and more things that were going in that church that uh, I wasn't too happy about. A bit of hypocrisy that was uh, being presented by a lot of people, and I reacted to it rather negatively. As it went on and I got into high school, I started playing music, and I ended up being in a, a part of a, of, a, of a band that we played Saturday nights out at a club out south of town, the new pastor that came to our church decided I was a heathen and that that was not appropriate to be involved with the, with the youth of the, of the church anymore. And so <laughs> I had an unsavory association from him, even though I sang in church every Sunday morning. I, mean, I was in the choir. That, that didn't make any difference. I was still a heathen, and I was uh, going you know where. It was okay for me because I was in high school. I got very involved in other activities that had to do with music, and I played more and more at that club uh, as it changed its management, and we got to be more of a jazz group than a, uh, than a dance band. And that uh, was a part of my early, uh, my early beginnings, really. When did music first appear as an interest for you? It started right in high school. When I started playing with that dance band, I guess I was maybe a sophomore in high school. We had a junior high school, and then we had a high school three years and three years. Anyhow, by the time I got to high school, I was playing with this this band quite a bit, and then we were playing with the uh, smaller groups that were playing more jazz, and that was the beginning of my interest. It was in high school, really. Even though I started in grade school, I started you know as a music student in grade school, and continued with my interest in music. And then, of course, as a result of that, when I when I graduated from high school, I got a scholarship to go to my parents' college or the university that was sponsored by the, the, that church that my parents went to. I went there because it was the only place we could afford me to go. My music continued, and it got more and more involved. It was very much a part of my life being a musician at that by that time. I was studying music, but the, the degree I got was in music education, but, but they didn't have much of anything else available that matched my desires because you couldn't study saxophone anywhere. You could only study clarinet, flute, 
oboe and English horn, bassoon, things of that. The classical instruments is what you could study. You could not study in colleges when I went to college. A saxophone, that was just not possible. Nor could you study jazz, I suppose? Oh, absolutely not. I, I was studying jazz every, uh, quite often. Matter of fact, that's, I, I just barely was able to graduate from that university with a, an average that just allowed me to do that because I was playing all the time. I was, I, I was playing with the local guys uh, in the town where, that, where that, uh, that school was, and I was spending more time playing than studying, really. This is what it boiled down to. By the time I got to college, what I found was the hypocrisy was so prevalent throughout both the university and in my in my church back uh, back in my hometown that I began to just to pull further and further away from it, and I was got to the point to where I really didn't want to hear anybody talking about. God and all of that sort of thing, was I saved and all of that stuff that you run into. Now, I never quit believing in God. When I was in junior high school was when I started with that youth group, I had a good concept of what God was, and I followed that. But my social activities were not acceptable to the church, and that's when I started being castigated for what I, what I was and what I wanted to be. So I turned left on the whole thing and said, okay, look, you, if that's where you're at, fine. Because at that point in time, I was more interested in music than I was in, the, in that particular church orientation of what religion was. So I, I got, went away from it. I, I kind of became, I wasn't an atheist by any means, but I believed in God. But I believed in God as I understood what I thought it was about. I got a very good education in the Bible, because that church, the school, the first semester was Old Testament, second semester was New Testament. So I got a good education in the Bible, okay? So I wasn't, I wasn't foolish. I knew what, I was, what, was, what was there. So you said you went into the service. How long were you in the service? I got drafted immediately after I graduated. Mm-hmm. And so how long were you in the service? Two years. I, mean, I was drafted at those times. That was a Korean thing. Draftees at that time were drafted for two years. I went into, there's a whole lot of stories also in the book about what happened at the university, what I didn't learn, what I should have learned. I learned in 10 seconds from, from a real clarinet player in, in Chicago. He was the first player, he was the principal clarinet with the Chicago Symphony. And he listened to me play, took 10 seconds, and he knew everything that I was doing wrong with the way I was playing. My teacher at the university, however, uh, I was in my senior year. This was my last year at that university, and he hadn't recognized anything that was wrong with my playing in the three years that he had me. And I learned in ten seconds from the, from a real clarinet player exactly what was wrong with everything I did. So you played with some pretty famous folks. Yes, I did. When did that break for you? When you were able to do that? Well, I was in the service. I got acquainted with a few people in the service who were musicians. and In fact, we all became musicians. That's all we did in the service was play. And I ended up at the Naval School of Music. And the Naval School of Music, I ran into guys that were in the service going to the Naval School of Music. Some of them became very famous later on, like Cannonball Latterday, the, the jazz saxophonist. He was in my band, and I was at it, the Naval School of Music. We became well acquainted. Being in the service, I got a lot of lot of connections with other musicians in different places, different parts of the country. And when I got home, I taught school for a couple of years, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. My mother was pretty insistent that I get a job rather than take a, a summer off <laughs> after being in Korea for two years. I tried to teach for two years, and I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to be a musician. I, I had been a musician all the time I was in the service. So I decided I'm going to head back east. And I got as far as Columbus, Ohio, where one of my homeboys was living, an older kid, my my sister's age. And so I just stopped off at his place and got a telephone call from my parents. They told me that I had a call from somebody in Galveston, Texas, who wanted me to join a band down there. So I called, and they told me that they wanted me to come and join the band with a full-time musician as a member of an orchestra. So I said, cool, that was the beginning. So I joined that. 
That's what the whole book is about. What happened after that? I went from one thing to another. I ended up going to New York simply because I was told by a few guys from New York who uh, came through. That was Denver, Colorado, where I was playing with a small group at a, at a club there. The guys that came through uh, that were from New York suggested I should go to New York. And I said, well, I'm, well, I'm ready for that. They, their answer to that was very simply, well, look, you never know until you try to tell you Go to the go to the big pond and try to try to swim in it. If you can't swim there, you could come back to Denver. Not a problem. You know, you'll be the best guy in town in Denver. So go try it. See what you can do. So I did. But the long story made short, I ended up playing with all the really the best big bands in the country at that time. And some of those bands were black bands, right? Most of them. The guys that I played with in, in Denver were black. You know, the title of that book. Life on the Fence, the first chapter tells you precisely why that title was used. Because here I'm a kid growing up in a farming community in southeastern Kansas. And I have, as one of my best friends, a black kid, a black drummer. We went to grade school together. We lived in the same back end of town. We became good friends, and he was the one that introduced to me introduced me to what was going on in our hometown. I didn't see it because our town was not segregated. It was integrated simply because our school, our town was so small, the school could not afford to have two school school systems in that one little town. So it was integrated. And I didn't realize what was going on in my hometown, but my friend Smitty, which I dedicated the book to Smitty, as a matter of fact, because he was the one that really opened up my eyes to our hometown. So I began to understand more why they were having these different problems in Chanute. And then I realized what it was. That never left me. From that point on, through high school, in fact, I've been called a few things in high school that most guys don't get called until they end up being adults or something. I spent my life on that fence. I would not fall off on the one direction, on the one side of the fence, because I didn't like what they were doing. I'm talking about the white community. I wasn't well accepted in the black community simply because I was white. So I was on the fence. And I was on, I stayed on that fence all the, all the course of my life. And as I say, in the culmination of the book, I state the fact that the fence I was on was getting to be pretty big because there were an awful lot of people up on that fence with me. But that was the whole course of my life. So it sounds like in a lot of ways the jazz music community was actually an example of being able to be integrated? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we were, we were totally integrated. But you know, the only thing they wanted to know was who you were. And they would be they were very careful about about checking you out with the, they have an expression there. They said, keep in your whole card. We want to know who you are. What's the inside of you? Where's this kid? Are you really who you appear to be or are you something else? Now there's a story in the book that I tell about Jerome Richardson, who was my really I thought was my best friend in New York City. It took three years we were together working with different bands and so forth. I mean, I, we worked with Quincy Jones. We played all, all these gigs at Basin Street East with the, backing all these great musicians and stars. I thought we were tight. Well, we were tight. I knew, I, knew, I knew his family. I knew everything about him. I knew the whole nine yards. But it took him three years before he sat down and talked to me and told me, you know, I want to tell you, and I'll tell you why. So he told me his whole, whole story of what he went through as a young person, young musician, in San Francisco. And he went to L.A. and thought that was the answer because everything was looking really good. And then he found exactly the same thing going on in L.A. that he had in San Francisco. So he left San Francisco, headed to New York, and made up his mind he would not ever, not ever trust a white man to be what he claims to be. Those three years went by, and he stopped. He wanted to talk to me after we finished our, our job at Basin Street. And he wanted to talk to me. And we stopped a little car I, I got while I was out in L.A. with uh, with Stan Kenton. And I uh, brought my Volkswagen back to New York, so I had a little car. And anyhow, 
uh, he wanted me to stop at, the, at his apartment building, and he wanted to talk to me. So he told me the story. And then he finally, finally said, you know, I wanted to tell you, Marv, that I really believe you are who you appear to be. And I can't tell you what that means to me because I have never been able to say that to a white man in the course of my entire life. You know, that'll tell you how important that thing is. Being who you are, really, and staying the course all the time. Doc, when did you get the moniker, Doc? Oh, that was after I left the business. When I was in New York, the music was marvelous. There was great music going on all over the city. During my stay there, in my days with all these the Duke Ellington alumni band, which was the, that may have been the best musical organization I ever played with. Sad Joe Mel Lewis Orchestra, I was the starter member of that at the Village Vanguard every Monday night. I, I played with everybody. <laughs> I played with Quincy Jones and uh, all these big bands I played with. But the music business started down a tube, started going down, down, down. And what I saw was going on, I did not want to be a part of because the quality of the music disappeared, totally disappeared. There was music going on, but the quality was not there. They were compromising everything, accommodating the business. We can't use your group the way you play because we can't sell that. We can't sell what you play. Music, we had to make some money on this. It's money, money, money. And I saw what was going on. I knew it was going to get worse, so I decided it's time to leave the business. So I did. That was when I went back to graduate school. That's the moniker, Doc. When I was at Oakland University, this was after I did my work at Western University uh, under the, uh, the discipline, ethnomusicology. So I passed all my exams for the Ph.D. I just didn't write the dissertation because I was too busy building a program at, at Oakland. Anyhow, all of my students at Oakland, when they found out that I was born and raised in Kansas, and my name was Holiday, you're from the United States, right? I am. Then you know the answer. If you're, you're a Holiday and you're living in Kansas or in Arizona or anywhere in that region of the United States, you will be called Doc. I have a very infamous uncle. The original Doc Holiday with Wyatt Earp and all the shootout, the OK Corral and all that. That's where the Doc came from. Technically, you could call me Doc. Then I did it all except like the dissertation. I had it all in my head. That's what I took it for in the first place. Let's go back to New York City. Because it was in New York City where my life really turned around. I mentioned Basin Street East, but I was working every Jerome. I don't know whether Jerome was on this gig or not that I'm referring to. I was with the house band. The house band was always contracted with each act that was coming in. They would get the people in town that were best equipped to play that music. Or at least they felt that they were the best equipped. We're backing Vic Damone at Mason Street East. Good singer, very good singer. I don't think it was the first night, maybe the second night, or somewhere during that first week that we were there, the drummer of the group that came to New York with Nick Malone was a gentleman named Sid Bolkin. Sid Bolkin, born and raised in the Lower East Side of New York. So all of his life, you could tell where he came from. He talked like a Lower, Lower East Side Jew. He acted like a Lower East Side Jew. And everything about him was Lower East Side Jew, even though he lived in L.A. He never let go of that beginning that he started off with. Anyhow. Sid came up to the band room and started talking to us about something that happened in the 19th century that we all missed. And he went on about it at great length. Most of the guys that were there uh, heard what he was talking about, and they left. They got out of the room quickly. But four of us stayed and listened to this guy because he was interesting. And he was talking about this thing that happened in another part of the world that was really important because it, it had to do with what was expected to happen, but didn't. All of Christendom was looking for this to happen somewhere in the middle of the 19th century. Matter of fact, I have a collection of theologists, all of them writing about this advent that was coming, and it was going to happen somewhere between 18. 
1843 and 1845. There was some disagreement on which date it was going to be or what year it was going to be, but it was going to be in that time span. We listened to this. It was kind of interesting, is what he was saying. And so the four of us listened to him, and then he finally got around to say, look, this was the, all the biblical references to the twin trumpets, the twin blasts that was going to take place when he, whom, when the return of the spiritual essence of Christ would be here. You know, I knew this. I was a Bible student. So I knew about the twin blasts. I knew about the expectations. And I knew that they referred, of course, to the fact that it didn't happen as the great disappointment. The newspapers in New York City at, at that time made big headlines said the great disappointment because everybody was like, the, the Christ is going to return. <laughs> I knew about that, but that he's saying that it, it happened. It happened somewhere else. And we probably we never looked anywhere else because it was going to happen to us. But it, it didn't happen to us. It happened somewhere else. That's what it was all about. It's, it's, <laughs> so, so he was talking about it until the guy started saying, wait a minute, man, wait a minute. Hold, hold on. Now, you're, you're, you're going too far with this. Now, what are you trying to say? And he said, look, I'll tell you what. Let me just put it this way. He says, I'll tell you this, and you have a choice. You can call, you can just tell me that I'm a California nut, and I said, get out of your face or go back to California. Or you can pay attention to what I'm saying and maybe, maybe look at the possibility that it did happen this way. And I'm looking and I'm thinking about what he's saying, because I, I like the story. It fit what I did know. I thought to myself, no, wait a minute. I'm not going to blow him off just yet. I'm going, to, I'm going to have to ask him a question or two to find out if it was real. Anyhow, so he said, look, I'll tell you what. Let me just say this. Christ returned, and we missed him. Because he didn't come to us. He came to the people in Persia. I looked at him and said, Really? Okay, now wait a minute. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying, and I'm not going to blow you off, but I will, uh, you know, I will, I will investigate this, what you're saying. But when I find the hook, <laughs> that's what I used to refer to it. When I find the hook, I'll let you know about it. If you can't answer my question, then, it's, then we're through. But he said, that's fine, that's fine with me. And you go ahead. He said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a book. I'll give you a book tonight. You can read it here at your leisure. And when you finish reading the book, then you, you can come and ask me some questions, and I'll, I'll do my best to answer you. I said, well, fair. That's a good deal. You're, you're, you're not telling me that I have to go there, because otherwise I'm going to go to hell, like everybody else told me. They presented it in a way that I could, I could relate to, because what he did say, I knew. I knew about the, the, that the expectation that all of Christianity had for that revelation to, to appear, or that, one, that wonderful event that had to take place, and it didn't. So I, I was very familiar with that. So he gave me the book. I went home. I was kind of fascinated by this guy because <laughs> he, was, he was so unique because <laughs> where he came from and where he, came, where, he, where, he, where he spent his, most of his life in L.A., but he never lost who, where he was from which is the lower east side of New York, which is where I was living. I, this is, there's a connection going on here. I, I thought, well, okay, I'll give this, this a shot. I'll go home and I'll, start, I'll read this book. And so I went home and I started to read this book called Baha'u'llah on the New Era. I read in there and I started realizing that what this person, that the, the person who was, who was bringing this message is called Baha'u'llah, you, you never pronounce it correctly when you first try to say it. I'm thinking that here's this guy that's saying that's who he is, that what he is coming is to bring, open up these books that Christ had closed, and he's opening up all this information for us. What he was telling me was what I had believed from the time I was in junior high school. I knew that there, had, that there was only one kind of people in the world, because my, my friend was black, I was white, and we had conversations that clearly were complementing each other, 
He believed the same thing. I believed, I believed what he believed. And we thought, why can't it be that way? And then as I got older and I met Buddhists, I met, met Hindus, I met all kinds of people. And frankly, the spiritual capacity of the Buddhists and the, and the Hindus actually surpassed any Christians I ever met. You know, so consequently, I thought, wait a minute. To, to tell me that we're right and they're all wrong makes no sense to me. I just, I had to, I blew that off a long, long time ago as a kid. But I couldn't find any place. You know, the closest thing I could get to it was the jazz community because they really practiced what they preached. If you could play, that was their criteria. If you could really play and were willing to learn more, you know, that was fine. That was, that was what they wanted to hear from you. There was no racial problem. There was no male-female problem. There was, there was a community there. I was at home living in the, the five points of Denver, Colorado, is where I lived, in the basement of a black doctor's home. I rented an apartment in the basement of his house. I spent, I spent so much of my time in the black community in Denver. That was after I left the band in Denver <laughs> and started playing with this group in Denver. I had forgotten, really, I've been there so greatly embraced by that community that I'd forgotten that I actually was white. I was standing, I was one morning kind of shaving my face. I looked in the mirror and I saw this face looking at me, back to me and it hit me. That, oh God, my God, I'm white. Oh, and I, I totally forgotten about it because I was so welcomed in the black community around in Denver that I was a part of that. You know, it just continued with this. So, did you become a Baha'i in New York? Yeah, right. She introduced me to the Baha'u'llah Nuel. Okay? I read that. I read it. I went to sleep. The book was on my chest. I woke up in the morning. I mean, we get home at six o'clock. We go to bed at about six o'clock. We get to play at, at, at four. And then, you know, we have to go get, get a bite to eat. And then we go to bed. So I started reading after I got home, it was probably about 5.30, and I read until I went to sleep. I woke up, the book was on my, my chest, I started reading some more. I continued to do that all day long. I would, I would do things, I would read. I would sleep, I would read. I would do something else, I would read. I took the book back to him that night. I had read the whole thing. I had read the entire Baha'u'llah and the New Era, and I looked at this guy, and I said, Okay, now what do we do? I said, you know, uh, <laughs> finally, I'm hearing and I'm reading. Somebody is saying that I've been right all along in my, my life. From the time I was a kid in junior high school, I knew there had to be something. And here, I'm hearing it being said by this person called Baha'u'llah that it was exactly what should be. What did I say over here? <laughs> What a shock it was to discover that what I had always believed should be was. That's the truth of it. I recognized it. And I said, wait a minute. So he gave me more books to read. And then he took me to Firesides. I even went to the Baha'i Center in, in New York, which was then at the, on 6th Avenue and 57th Street. The Baha'i community met in, the, in a room in the, in the basement off of 56th Street. And I went there, and there was a, a meeting going on, and a, a gentleman was up front talking. My friend and I, it was Jerome. Jerome and I were back in the back, just inside the door. And we were waiting around for somebody to recognize we were there. No one did, so we thought, well, okay, we're, just, we're getting a draft. Maybe we, maybe we should draft, meaning you, you weren't, no one was really interested in us being there. We were just about ready to walk out the door, and the guy that was giving the talk saw us. And he stopped in the middle of his sentence, and he started walking back to us, towards us immediately. And his, his, I mentioned that his eyes lit up like it was a couple of, you know, landing lights from a 747 come into, coming into JFK. It was something to see. Anyhow, we got up there, and the whole, the whole group of people that were, had by that time all stood up, and were all standing, turned around to look and see who was back there. And he, he welcomed us in, and we all were taken down there and introduced all these people. We, we looked around. We thought, wow, this is really unusual, because there were all kinds of people there. 
there were people there in, in work clothes who obviously were working on the docks. There were people with pinstripe suits and, and ties and the whole nine yards. There were obviously business people that were obviously quite successful in New York City. And there were all kinds of people there, all kinds of all colors, all all races and so forth. And so we thought, oh, okay. And they were they were embracing us by this time. So when we left, we had well, we had a good taste of what being a Baha'i was about. So that was cool. And so that just confirmed all the things that I was learning from the firesides I was going to. Through all of that, I was working on the same gig. I was taking a friend of mine up to his apartment on the upper west side along Riverside Drive. I was telling him all about this stuff I was learning. And I let him out because he said, you know, from the Mars, he said, I have to go in because Morgana King, my girlfriend, is not going to believe I've been sitting out here talking to you about religion. So I better get in before she wakes up or I'll, I'll never be able to convince her that I'm out here with you. So I turned around, sat down, you know, the, the Riverside Drive. I realized what I'd been doing, what I'd been telling him. I thought to myself, man, you hated people that did this to you. You know, telling you about, you know, things that you learned, what you needed to know about this. And I stopped the car and said, you know, i got to cut this loose. This is exactly what I said to myself. Then it hit me. And it hit me so hard, I realized that I couldn't give it up because it was true. And I sat there. It had been raining. But it stopped raining, and my, my little beetle had a sun, a big, that rollback roof that we had in those days. I opened that up, and the stars were out. I looked up at the stars, and I'm thinking to myself, why me? Why did I get this information? Why did I be, why did I have this opportunity to meet Sid Bulk and as a result meet all these other people and find out about this faith and how real it is. So I went back to my, my room, picked up the phone, I called Sid. That was about maybe 7 o'clock in the morning. He had just probably gone to bed. And he gave me, he answered the phone, you know, in a very sleepy voice. And I said, okay, Sid, now I know. I know who Baha'u'llah is. What do we do now? <laughs> and, and he said, okay, okay, man, okay, okay. Meet me for lunch. I said, okay, I'll meet you at the hotel for lunch. Fine, so we met at 12 o'clock. We had our breakfast at 12 o'clock. That's how that all went about, and then he, we talked about all the things I had to do to satisfy the assembly, write in the letter that I understood all these things and so forth. So I did. They told me that I was to come to them at their meeting on April 20th, but I had to be there at 6 o'clock, no later. I said, wait a minute. So I don't have to be at the club until 9.30, and you're asking me to come at 6 o'clock, and I have to go all the way down to Midtown, and you're going to be there until midnight anyhow. Why do I have to come? He said, be here at 6 o'clock, and we'll tell you later. I said, okay, fine. So, so be it. So I packed up, got dressed, and I put up for the evening's work, and I went to the, uh, to the meeting. They took my information, and then one of them said, now, listen, Mark, we'll explain to you why. We insisted on you coming when we told you to be here. You made your declaration at 6 o'clock when you walked in. But what we wanted to let, the, let you know is the reason why we insisted on you coming at 6 o'clock was that at sundown on April 20th in 1963 will be the end of the first century of the, of the revelation of the Baha'i faith. <laughs> That's the whole story of me becoming a Baha'i. And I've been one ever since, of course. Did you become a Baha'i before or after Dizzy Gillespie? Before. I left the business, I told you. I was living in Connecticut. I went back to school at Yale for a year. I was living in the, in the New Haven area. I got this telephone call from, my, from a friend of mine that I knew in New York, in the city who was living in, in, in uh, Jersey at that time. And he called me and says, he says, uh, Marvin, listen, I, uh, I think we just got a, a, a declaration card of a, of, a, of a friend of yours who I think you, I think, I think you, you, I think you know him. I said, okay, uh, who's this? And he said, uh, it's uh, John Brooks. I said, let me. <laughs> yep. He said, yep, Dizzy declared in California. 
and we got the card today, and he's a Baha'i. And I said, wow, that's great. So I said, okay, i got to call somebody. So I picked up a phone called Clinton Jackson, who was also one of the, one of the four guys that was there when we when Sid first introduced, introduced us to the Baha'i faith. He was also one of, one of the four people that was there. And he, he came, became a Baha'i, oh, I guess two or three weeks after I did. It was years later that I got this call about Dizzy being a Baha'i. So anyhow, yeah, that's the answer to that one. You're not living in the United States at present. No, I live in Ecuador. So can you tell me the circumstances of you changing your residence to Ecuador? I'll make it very simple. I only taught at the university for 16 years. Most of the guys who teach at the at university or at, in education, they're, they're there from 30 or 40 years. You know, In fact, I just went to the retirement party of my my teacher, who taught me about uh, uh, West African music, he, was, he had been there for 46 years, and I was in his very first class. Most college professors are there for a lot of long time, and they get a lot, they get really good benefits. And their retirement packages are really quite, quite enough to live quite comfortably without any trouble. But I spent most of my years, my productive years, on bands traveling around the country and the world. I wouldn't change it for nothing, but I didn't make a whole lot of money, and I didn't I didn't have any great retirement benefits that I would have had had I been a, a teacher all that time. But then I wouldn't have known what I knew, so my teaching would have been limited, really. The quality of my teaching would have been limited. So our retirement income was a lot less that while we can continue to live comfortably in the United States. So we saw immediately that we were going to have to live somewhere else. And we began to look. The problem is that every place we looked was as expensive or more expensive in some cases than the United States would have been. So we decided to look. We realized that we had met a couple from Ecuador who were Baha'is, by the way. They were in Michigan when we were there because the woman had had to have a major heart surgery. And of course, that required a long recovery time. They lived in our community where we lived in, in Ann Arbor. And so we spent a lot of time together. So we got very well acquainted and so forth. And after we realized we weren't finding any place where we could live, I got on the internet, started looking around and ran a couple of uh, websites and talking about how economical it was to live in Ecuador. And I thought, well, no, wait a minute, that's a, that's a good idea. But, you know, then I then hit me. Oh, wait a minute! Charles and Helen Hornby were our friends in in Ann Arbor all that time. I'm gonna get a hold of Charles because I knew that Helen had died. Uh, so I called Charles and, I, and he said, "Look, that's a great idea, but uh, don't come for a couple of weeks. Make sure that you can come here and spend a month, and then you can get around Ecuador. And if you find that you like it, you think you can really live here and enjoy it." then you can go home and make that, make that decision, and, and you can come back if you want to. So that's what we did. And the long story being made short, we saw that we could, live, we could live here on our limited retirement income quite comfortably, not high on the hog by any means, but we could live comfortably here. And so we decided, okay, and we, we, we know we know Charles, and so he knows all the behinds here. And so we'd go to Ecuador and, and make a, a life for ourselves there. So we did. So do you know Spanish? Very little. We had a course. It was really tourist Spanish. It didn't do us a bit of good down here. We weren't too concerned about it, frankly, because I had traveled, and every place we went, I could, I could, I could pick up enough of the language to be able to function where, wherever I was, French. Italian, Spanish, whatever, whatever it happened to be, I could do it. And so we figured that, uh, well, you know, we're somewhat learned. We're not ignorant people. We're pretty, uh, we're pretty, pretty bright, really. But that was about 30, 40 years ago. When I got here, I was almost 80 years old. All of a sudden, I realized that my mind was not as facile as it was 30 years ago. Consequently, it's been, a, it's been a chore. Diane's doing pretty good, but she's 12 years younger than me. She's doing pretty well with it. I'm doing better, but I'm not very good with Spanish. But uh, 
I can understand what a lot of people are trying to say, and they understand what I'm trying to say. So we get along very well here with, with limited English. That's great. But just the community we live here, the block we live in is just dynamite. Everybody in this block comes from some indigenous family that lives out in the campo, you know, in the country. So their orientation is not with the typical Pito, capital city, big industry, money, 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 and all that sort of thing. We've got people here that really are from the country, our whole neighborhood. <laughs> we have become one very big family up and down this block. From, <laughs> from, from the African Ecuadorians at the bottom of our street up to the, the, the people right next door to us are from a, a, uh, an Indian culture somewhere here in, in Ecuador. We just have a marvelous time with each other. And we get along just fine. We're not sitting around carrying on conversation with each other, but our communication is very well understood. We're very happy here. We have a fireside coming up Sunday afternoon. So, Doc, what are you doing these days? Well, I just came back. The university at Oakland, where I did my teaching, brought me back to celebrate what I started there 40 years ago with a world music program, which was focusing at that point in time on the music of West Africa. The class that I taught was a survey of world music, so I could teach the students there, give an introduction to all of the indigenous cultures of the world. That was what it was about. That's what ethnomusicology was about. Anyhow, so I started that, and I've changed a lot of lives, as a matter of fact, from that course, because they had not heard the vitality of the, of the indigenous musics of the world. And when they finished, finished that course, they were enlightened because no one had ever brought that, that idea into focus for them. What I went back for was to celebrate the dedication of the African drums that I had acquired from Ghana to do this program. That was 40 years ago, and I had brought the teacher, my teacher, the master teacher that I, I had studied with here along with uh, a dancer and a, another African student who was going to, to Westland, they gave a week worth of, of master classes and workshops and so forth and with the music and the dance of that culture of Ghana. <laughs> uh, we celebrated that and then Friday night we played a concert of the music that this guy that has followed me has taken over from, from when I left. I'm doing a marvelous job. He's, he's doing things that I would only dreamed about doing at Oakland. And he, it's just marvelous what he's doing. Anyhow, so we did this big concert. I had to get up at 6 o'clock the next morning and fly to Hartford to get, to get a, a shuttle to go to Western University to be on a panel to discuss the value of what Azania's teaching what meant to me because I was in his very first class and that at Wesleyan University in, in Middletown, Connecticut. That was my Saturday occupation. And then I, I had to fly immediately back to Detroit to fly out of Detroit the next day to head back here to Quito. So the, the two weeks were very intense. I'm about exhausted. There was a story in Doc's autobiography, Life on the Fence, that I wanted him to share. We were living in Ann Arbor. I decided, because I'd, I'd been going back and forth from Michigan over to the House of Worship at Wilmette, was a two-and-a-half-hour drive, pretty much, with me driving it was. <laughs> I had agreed with Charles Nolly. He was the engineer at the studio in the basement of the, of, the, uh, of the House of Worship there in Wilmette. I wanted to do this recording project with him in that studio. And so we agreed on the, on the date. I went over to some friend's house over in west side of, of Michigan, and just practiced every day and kept get, getting everything really in good shape. And then I drove over to Wilmette and picked up my wife at the, at the train station on the way, and we went to, to Wilmette to, to do this. Well, this was going to be a solo improvisation recording. I went into the studio with the intent to do this recording. Now, a solo improvisation is totally different than playing with a group. There's nobody there. There's no help. It's just you 
and the microphone and your instrument, whatever it is you're playing. Charles understood this, and he set things up for me so that the equipment was set up the way I could get the, you know, get the, get the best sound from it. He was very good at doing that. So I started to play the first tape that I was doing, and I was playing, and as I was playing, I could hear something that was coming out of the end of the horn that I had never heard before. And so I got kind of excited about what I was doing, and I thought to myself, man, I should, that, that, I'll take that freeze and play it over again. No! My mind said, no. I'm, I'm sitting here carrying on a conversation with me as I'm playing, and the music is coming out my horn. But I'm carrying on this, this, this argument with myself about trying to take this, that, 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 that line that I just played and doing it again. And I would argue, I'd argue back and forth with myself as I was playing it. And it's in the book. That's what you're referring to. Anyhow, I, I did this for quite a while. I finally, I finally was able to shut myself up. And I continued to play. And I, I just was amazed at what was coming out via that horn. It was, you know, a solo improvisation. It's not based on anything. It was just me opening myself up to let the creator. We, we never, none of us actually, we, none, of us, none of the music that we play comes from us. It comes through us. And to have that orientation, to really realize that that's what's really going on. You get the craft. You learn to play. Yeah, get all these skills of playing so that this can happen. It can't happen with you unless you unless you have command of the instrument. But that's that's where I was. This music was coming through that horn. I was hearing it and I was excited about what I was hearing. But I finally got myself to shut up and continue. And I was playing and I was just this thing was just flying out of the end of that horn. I thought, Wow, man, this is I've never played this thing anything like this before. And I heard my name spoke. I heard Mr. Holiday. I thought, what the heck? I'm still playing. I heard that. I said, no, that wasn't for me. And so I still play because I, I always have my eyes closed when I'm, when I'm playing a solo like that. And I played and I continued to play. It was just marvelous. Then I heard Mr. Holiday a little bit louder. And I thought, wait a minute, something's wrong here. So I kept playing. I couldn't stop. So I opened my eyes, and the engineer was standing in the doorway of the uh, control room, uh, shaking his head uh, uh, in a negative manner. And he used his finger across his throat and indicated it's not recording. I still couldn't stop. I still couldn't stop playing. I continued to play, but I realized that it was, it was not being recorded. So I kind of backed off and let it kind of disappear, and I was able to get the horn out of my mouth. And I looked at it, and I can't tell you what I felt like, because I have never played anything in my life that compared to what I played at that moment. And my wife confirms what I say. The guy said, I didn't want to stop you, because I could hear what you were doing. I, I didn't want to stop you, but I asked Mrs. Holliday... Uh, what we should do. And she said, well, you're going to have to tell him sooner or later. And so that's what happened as I was playing. Okay, now, we have got this. It's done. Nothing's done. I, can you imagine, since this was to be an expression of my musical connection, the, the idea was to follow themes that I thought of regarding Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha, the Bab, the, the concept of equality of men and women, and so forth and so forth. I always were in my head, this was a Baha'u'llah thing that I was playing. It was so beautiful that I could not accept the fact that it wasn't recorded. It took me a while to I I had to face the fact that it wasn't real. It's not going to be there. Now, that was so upset by the fact that it wasn't there because it was so magnificent in my belief. And my wife confirmed it. Like I asked her, I said, I said, was it really? She said, I've never heard anything like this ever, ever. From, no, from any place, I've never heard anything like that. <laughs> and she said, so I know what she said. I know why you're feeling this way. And I said, well, look, I've got, I've got to get out of here. I went upstairs to the uh, sanctuary, I guess you call it. 
I went up there. I got right smack in the middle of that whole room. And I just sat down in there, and I just closed my eyes, and I, I'm thinking to myself, I can't handle this. I've got to find out why. And so I sat there. Sat there for a good while. And it came to me that what I did was not lost, but it wasn't for here. What I played, what I heard come back to me. Excuse <laughs> me. Talk about recall. Wow, this is something else. Anyhow, I realized that what I had played for was for the concourse on high. That music went there. It didn't go into the into the tape machine to be played again by somebody here. That's what it was for. When I realized that, I was able to get up and walk back downstairs and begin to record again. The first track on that CD was the second track that I played that day. And it's the first track on the CD. The CD is called Wings for the Spirit. Solo improvisations on baritone saxophone, bass clarinet. Doc, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and your life with us. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Marvin Doc Holliday, ethnomusicologist and jazz legend who played with the likes of Pepper Adams, Cannonball Adderley, Nat Adderley, Quincy Jones, and Dizzy Gillespie. His autobiography is Life on the Fence. His most recent solo CD is Wings for the Spirit. At the end of the program, I play the first track from Wings for the Spirit. The track is called Baji. Baji is the last residence of Baha'u'llah and his burial site. Baha'is all over the world make pilgrimage there to pray at the shrine of their prophet founder. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.